You're listening to UX Podcast brought to you from Stockholm, Sweden. For people passionate about balancing business, technology and users within the realm of digital media. Helping you break down silos, here are your hosts, James Royal Lawson and Per Axboom. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of UX Podcast. You're listening to me, Per Axboom. And me, James Royal Lawson. And it's October the 11th. Yep. And we're in Stockholm in Beantin HQ. It's a rainy Thursday. Well, it's, it's not rainy, rainy but no. it's cold and it's it's wet. It's autumn. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been really looking forward to today, today's episode, actually. Why? What are we doing? We are interviewing the authors of Make It So. And um, uh, the, they are Nathan Shedroff, who is... Uh, an experienced strategist, but he's also the chair of the MBA in Design Strategy program at California College of the Arts, CCA. And Chris Nosel, uh, Chris Nosel, Christopher Nosel, I don't know. Uh, Chris or Christopher. Chris, Christopher. Yeah, Christopher Nosel, mm. uh, who's managing director of interaction design at Cooper, yeah. uh, who should be known to most interaction designers, that company. And there, we're, um, we're spanning three time zones for this um, interview. Right. We're here in S- Stockholm, Sweden. Yep. Um, time is four in the afternoon almost. Yep. And um, I think it was Nathan is in New York. Yep. And Chris is in San Francisco. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get him out of bed when we call him in. Yeah, it's seven in the morning, I think, yep. soon there. Yeah. Yep. So let's wake <laughs> up and smell the coffee, Chris. <laughs> so what's this book about, James? Um, interaction design or interaction interfaces in science fiction. Yeah, mm. make it so. It's it's been a fun read. It's it's really weird reading about interaction design from a futuristic perspective, and look, but it's not futuristic because you're looking back fifty years to the old movies yeah. that you saw as a kid. Well, hundred years the book covers. Hundred years actually is where it starts. Yeah, because mm. yeah. it starts with the motion pictures of, of sci-fi. Mm. So let's call these guys up and see what they have to say yeah. for themselves. Press some buttons, bud. Hi there, both of you. Hey, morning, Nathan. Good morning to you. Just going to add Chris here as well. Great. Whenever we actually connect, whenever I actually connect with anyone, someone, I anyone... feel like we're actually in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You guys haven't happened yet. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Could write a book about that. <laughs> it seems like Chris is not hearing us, right? One, two, one, two. Hello, hello. Hello. We hear you. I'm, I'm just impressed that we've we got everyone kind of up and awake and alive at the yeah. same time. <laughs> we've. Um, we, oh, we've... yeah. He probably hasn't had his coffee yet. That's the problem. Uh, exactly. Well, or, or his machine hasn't anyway, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And time zones are so weird around the world anyway. Do you, you know, you probably already know that India is on a half hour time zone, right? Yeah. 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 And, and there are two islands off the east and west of Australia that are on, get this, 15 minute time zones. Yeah, I mean, like, why Wait, not at that point? Which, which islands are those? Ooh, Ooh. interaction Ooh. in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I know, nifty, nifty, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is the future. <laughs> Fantastic. So, how are you doing, Chris? Uh, doing fine. Um, the only the only thing that's weird this morning is that my cats decided that this is the morning they really want to be feisty. So I'm trying to stop them from fighting. Um, hopefully, it won't happen during the course of the interview because that would be very embarrassing. Oh, the sound effects are fun. <laughs> Yeah, makes it real. (laughs) Exactly. So, do you guys have time for your day jobs? You seem to travel a lot. (laughs) Nathan, you want to go with that? (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, my day travel is the only time I ever like catch up with anything. So it's actually 
uh, helpful when I travel. It's the only time I ever get, get my email inbox down to past 200. <laughs> um, and uh, it's the only time I ever get a chance to write or, or sort of really think because I'm so interruptive and otherwise. But I, I do, you know, I can do most of my, much of my day job on the road through email. Uh, but my teaching is spread out on every other two Sundays a month. So, you know, it gives me a lot of travel time in between. Mm. Okay. Um, and for me, I'm at a point at Cooper now where um, I'm only somewhat engaged with clients, certainly not for the full duration of any of our projects. Um, so as long as it sort of fits that's the, you know, the important milestones over a given project, um, it doesn't really impact it when we uh, travel to talk to the folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. No, it's really nice that you guys wanted to be on the show. It's, uh, I, hadn't really, I hadn't heard about the book before, actually. Uh, it's funny, a, a, a friend of ours sent out an article uh, that one of you had written, I think, the one that Chris sent out, uh, Chris McCann. Yeah, which article? Uh, it, was, it was about the oh, book. Oh, yeah, no, it was, it was about, about the book. book. You're right, sorry, yeah, book. you know. And yeah. you, you responded, we're going to interview those guys in a week. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, I'd already started yeah. reading the book. Yeah. So I... and, 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 and this guy, I had lunch with him the other day, and he said, those guys must be so geeky. I mean, why did they write that book? That's so silly. <laughs> They're just into these, this thing, and they write a book about it. So, so I guess we should start off there. I mean, how did you guys get the idea for the book, and, and what possessed you to keep going with it? Well, the book, let's just, just, <laughs> well, let's just back a little bit and say the book is Make It So. Yep. And it's written by um, Nathan and Chris. Well, Nathan um, Shedoff and Christopher Nussel. Is that right? Well, yes, yeah, yeah, that's good. a good point. Good I think we're... Nice. I Thank think you. we're just one entity now called Nathan and Chris. <laughs> Nathan ah, okay. Chris. Good. <laughs> and I, I actually had to look up why it's called Make It So because I wasn't a big Star Trek fan back in the day. For shame. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. I, I've, I've explained to But him. now I've watched all the YouTube clips and I've seen Picard say it, uh, I don't know, yeah. a thousand times. So. And I was even demonstrating <laughs> the, um, the, the, the finger gesture that Picard does yeah. when he goes, Make It So, to Chris. But I'm doing it now. <laughs> yeah, you're doing it now. <laughs> James has friends who has costumes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so do I. <laughs> yeah, that was a real strange feeling when I saw that wardrobe. Um, it, it comes as a bit of a su- shock surprise when you realize your friends have three Star Trek uniforms. <laughs> well, except that, and, and, I, and this is brought up in a, in a couple different films, um, it, it doesn't seem that strange and weird when you find your friends with football jerseys or, right. you know, soccer jerseys or something. You're quite right. It's mm. a, essentially the same thing. Mm. And I should confess that one of the talks we gave uh, very early in the development of the book oh, yeah. um, included a costume party uh, at which I was Ooh. able to attend in a stormtrooper costume, which oh, may wow. be the sort of highlight of my nerd costume career. <laughs> yeah. And and I will mention he won first place. Ooh. I did. Oh, nice. I did. Yeah. <laughs> well, anytime you add a leather harness to something, I'm sure that uh, kicks, kicks it up a notch of nerdiness. <laughs> oh. So, yes, yeah, so it was a stormtrooper outfit with a leather harness on over it. Mm. Yeah. A level of nerdiness. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, one of the things that we hear a couple of times when we're talking or if we're you know, doing that sort of ego browsing of uh, websites where they're talking about the book mm-hmm. is that people presume that this is our day job. I've heard people say, wow, ah, what a okay. cool job. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just not true. <laughs> we just like doing it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's the best well, thing. That's why we do the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then to get back to your question, I mean, this was an idea I had back in, this is Nathan, 88 or 89, mm-hmm. um, after some film I saw, saw in which it had interfaces. But it's an idea, and in fact, I, you know, I came up with the title of the book back then too, but never did anything on it until about 96, I believe, when I started talking to Chris about it. And he said, yeah, right on. This sounds like fun. And even back then, we knew – we had a, a feeling that there would be something interesting in that kind of investigation. But we had no idea exactly what would you know, come out of it or that we would find so much material. Hmm. Uh, quick, quick data, not 96, 2006, right? Right? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, 2006. <laughs> yeah. I tend to make the same mistake. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. You know, decades fly by now. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sign of our ages, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was just going to say, like, it's one, one kind of nerd thing to have been doing the six years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, book the interview. Different... we'll book the interview with you in 10 years' time yeah. so we can have the, um, <laughs> okay, good. the re-meet-up I... and talk about it 16 years on. So you've been, both been doing like what we'll what we call it, interaction design for a while now, like 20 years plus, and you both speak and teach all over the world. Um, so I guess the common interest of, of the sci-fi genre both made you want to do this. But you, I understand you also had to limit it. I mean, you have you, you have found the idea and you had all these uh, this material, but you had to limit it like to movies because there's not a whole lot of books and stuff in the book. Movies well, and TV. Yeah. yeah, both movies and TV. Movies and TV, um, right. When we, when we recognized that the aspect of sci-fi that we wanted to talk about was really the interfaces, that sort of provides some, some natural uh, boundaries for w- what parts of sci-fi we look at. Mm. Um, uh, in, in the book, Chapter One, we uh, go through a little bit about uh, an interface that's described from the time machine. And when you read it, it's sort of sufficient for the narrative, but um, there's no way you could actually evaluate it in text. So uh, no. we, we, we really couldn't look at it in text. Uh, we couldn't even look at it in like still pictures or um, like uh, graphic novels, uh, if only because the depictions like change over time. Um, that really left us with live action or 3D movies and television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. if not, you're right. You get, it gets too subjective because you have to add too much uh, detail yourself to the situation rather than analyze yeah, the and, scene. And then you're sort of like evaluating your own imagination and yeah. who cares about that. <laughs> yeah, it's getting very anal in here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you sort of spin out of control. And the other thing was like even even just movies and TV, Like I don't think even in six years, Nathan, we could have done it. Um, we still had to even sort of choke in from that. And we first tried to find uh, movies or television that were sort of most popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that sort of drifted into things that people were telling us about. Oh, you've got to see this movie Chrysalis or, oh, you've got to see this movie Sleep Dealer. Um, but still, like, we, we ended up having to refer to the survey a lot um, so that we were careful about not saying, oh, we don't see this in sci-fi mm-hmm. because sci-fi fans are a... Um, uh, Enthusiastic an bunch. E- yeah, they're Thank an you. eagle-eyed bunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... and- Right, and so we, we, you know, we've watched a lot of sci-fi. I mean, our whole lives included, but certainly over the six years in this investigation, we've covered a lot of ground. There's still a lot more to go, mm-hmm. particularly with uh, some British and, 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 in essence, just sort of everything non-U.S. And we continue mm-hmm. to watch sci-fi. You know, even now we're swapping files and screenshots back and forth, and write-ups, and they're making more. You know, like they won't stop. So. Mm-hmm. 
this is uh, turning into sort of a never-ending, but happily so, affair. Yeah, I actually saw Prosthesis um, oh, yeah. um, this last week. Mm. Um, and of course, I'd, I'd been reading the book um, well, last couple of weeks. So when I, went, when I was in the, in the film watching it, I'm kind of constantly looking at the interfaces and what's been on screen. <laughs> I tried mm. to do my own little <laughs> mini-analysis. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit um, infected now, I think. Nice. <laughs> uh, I have heard... It's working. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, well done, totally. Lucian. Uh, a friend of mine actually told me fairly recently that I have ruined sci-fi for him. <laughs> yeah, um, that but... was going to be one of my questions. I mean, can you enjoy it after this book, yeah, actually? <laughs> I think there's definitely a risk for that. Yeah, oh, it's definitely I, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, anyone uh, that's in any kind of technical field, you know, must have been uh, affected by, you know, poor narratives, whether it was a well-designed interface or whether it was ridiculous technology that could never be that breaks the laws of physics. I mean, that's something that we've all had to uh, suffer or ignore anyway. So I don't think that this actually ruins interfaces. I think it might amp a level of humor that we didn't necessarily mm. have in mind when we see stuff. Um, but I don't, it hasn't, certainly hasn't ruined sci-fi for me. It's only made it more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you always watch movies or TV with uh, just a, a, a threshold level of is this believable? And you know, sometimes it could be the the science involved that you're like, what the hell? Yeah. Or it could be a character's actions, like you know, they would never do that. And it just adds this additional mm-hmm. layer that we're looking at and we're saying, well, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't really map to that. Or I see what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. but. You know, um, and only in a couple of cases is it so egregious that, you know, I'm like, I can't keep watching. (laughs) Yeah. No, this is actually something um, I've I've written down my notes here about the the complex feedback loop that we're we're talking about, discussing in the book here, that um, that sci-fi feeds us and sci-fi is feeding itself. And at the same time, we're feeding sci-fi. I think there was an interesting bit you wrote, um, I think it was in chapter 13, when you're talking about Brainstorm and Strange Days and that the... um, the device in in Strange Days for uh, viewing the, um, the the films as such the, that they've got in the film mm. it's called a squid and you say about how it was um, um, it was smaller than the one that was used in Brainstorm because Brainstorm's a film was produced ten years before it mm. so there was an interesting reference there to how you know time real time moves on and mm. our expectations or our boundaries of what we're willing to accept as as believable mm. goes on and changes yeah, and, and, and develops. But but also in the real world, because in, early on in the book, you, you talk about how buttons disappeared from the interfaces on the mm. ships uh, because they were just too expensive. And so they had these flat layers. And now we have, have, have these flat layer screens all over the place because we're so influenced by, by sci-fi. Mm. And I'd like to see, <laughs> isn't there some, some way, like you, you also talk about there's, there's some sort of comfort in mechanical controls. And should we really, really shouldn't we come back to mechanical controls more and more and not be in, as influenced by sci-fi as we are. Well, and, and, and so a couple things. One is uh, I have to note that the claim that the reason they went to these flat panels is in dispute. Ah, um, okay. we, we did get someone to write back to us to say it wasn't budget at all, but I distinctly remember reading <laughs> a comment about that, I think from uh, Chris Okuda, who, who designed them. So I, I'm busy trying to track it down, but some things are not easy to find. On the internet, now, surprisingly, we just we just found out that Michael Okuda is on Facebook, so we're like trying to get him to friend us, mm, <laughs> nice. so we can have that mm. chat. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so, and, and he's always been notoriously sort of um, 
uh, tight-lipped about the production of uh, the Star Trek, you know, the the production design in in that era of Star Trek. That said, and this is something we we have at the end of the second chapter on physical controls. Mm, yeah. Even in sci-fi, we're seeing a blending of sort of physical controls and and virtual controls, whether they're volumetric projections or, or touch screens. Mm. And it's for a simple reason, I think. You know, we are human, and our, you know, until our bodies go away. Our hands are are pretty good interface operation, you mm. know, devices, and touch screens just don't do very well for everything. You you know, mm, there are some funny examples where they show up and they're sort of uncharacteristically and out out of place in sci-fi. But for the most part, we're now seeing a blending of controls, at least in sci-fi, and I would assume correspondingly, we'll probably start seeing more of them in uh, mm. the real world too. Yeah, I think yeah. you you give the you have one of the lessons was about um, using physical controls for for f- fine control, um, and then there was the, the example of was it Will Riker in the Star Trek film where a, a silly little joystick pops up so he can fly the, oh, uh, yeah. the ship manually. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other thing to say is that you know Chris and I aren't exactly uh, of one mind on on some of these details too. We we do go back and forth. Okay, cool. Uh, mm. Chris sees that seen as fairly reasonable that you would have a you know a manual control for something like that and mm. and in general I agree I mm. just think it's a place in the film since we haven't we didn't we don't get to see it used for you know until the end at this moment attention when all the other you know uh, weapons that have been used up till that point have been used you know using this touchscreen interface and then all of a sudden we pop up the manual control mm-hmm. uh, the There's film. The, uh... Track, the, the latest installation, the reboot, I think is much better about that because you see physical controls used throughout the film, so it doesn't sort of pop up in one place and then seem like an out of out of place joke. Mm. Right. Oh yeah, but but they ended up spending all their sort of interface believability on those unbelievably complex transparent screens everywhere. Um, Did you see all the like if you've gone through Starfleet, supposedly you're well trained, but uh, yeah, they just go, kind of went beyond the pale for complexity. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things you guys had asked in your original question was sort of about that loop of influence and a yeah. pattern that, mm-hmm. that um, Nathan and I had talked about during the course of the writing of the book, but never actually made it into the text of the book. Uh, it was called What You Know Plus One, uh, which is pretty much what uh, especially blockbuster sci-fi can afford to do, which is take the modern paradigms and extend them just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So um, when we look back in like 1927 Metropolis, um, it was, you know, the, the big video phone interface that was on the wall was pretty much pretty much what the audience knew, which was uh, telephony plus mm-hmm. film. Yeah, that's what they could afford to do. Hmm. But ten years later, you get to Buck Rogers, and everyone's got a television, or hmm. or at least has seen one, and now they can no longer do that. So uh, hmm. the new what you know is television, and plus one in this case was big and on the wall, yeah. um, and that pattern still continues to this day. Um, except there's an interesting addition to it, hmm. uh, which is what you know now includes sci-fi. Um, exactly. I was going to add there that what you know also depends on the how long the the series or the film franchise have been running. Um, we're thinking again about Star Star Trek. That there's um, there's the uh, Memory Alpha website, which is very similar to the old encyclopedias that you used to get, where there's entire websites and books explaining how things work in that universe or in that particular you know um, program. Mm. Um, yeah. So as you as a viewer of it, you, you, your believability is, well, well oh, that wor- a warp drive works in that way. 
and if it doesn't work how you've 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 learned over six series of next generation or something then you feel cheated right <laughs> yeah the world mm. has been broken yeah. yeah even though it's not even a real world mm. yeah yeah, yeah true, and true. That, any fiction is like that you know whether it's sci-fi or whether it's fantasy or in mm. to some extent whether it's a crime novel you know, you can't pierce the sphere of credibility or else it all comes crashing down. But mm. as long as you stay within it uh, pretty consistently, we as audience members will accept a lot of really weird, silly, cool stuff. Yeah. Yep. And I, yeah, I kind of think it's like it, it drives some things to ridiculous ends and they're sort of fun anthropological moments. Um, the Universal Translator in the <laughs> yeah. film, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, in the television show of Star Trek is one example. Um, there's, a, there's a great scene in the episode, The 37s from Voyager, yeah. um, where Jane was actually sort of telling these um, people that they've just woken up out of a stasis um, who've been there since 1937, and they include Amelia Earhart. Mm. Um, they're explaining to the Japanese man there, he's like, hey, sounds like you guys are speaking Japanese. And they say, oh, no, you sound like you're speaking English. Um, and she points to her com badge, of course, and she says, oh, this is a universal translator. It, it lets us hear each other in, in our own languages, um, which is needed for the narrative. I get yeah. that. Yeah. I, I understand that it's much more complicated to, to have that same narrative without it, except... Um, to try and work that out diegetically, like to make it make sense in the universe, uh, just stretches your brain beyond all belief. Uh, I, I'm sure language translation is possible. We've got something akin to it now. Mm. Um, but but we actually see him speaking English. Exactly. You we see, see the lips yeah. move. Yeah. yeah, his face is speaking English. And unless that com badge has some sort of like uh, 3D, you know, holographic masking mm. capability, it's just not happening. <laughs> Well, to be fair, they were on the holodeck at the time, but yes. No, no, no. They they were on a planet. They no, 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 but that scene the... happened. I think was it on a hol? It was on the ship. Look, what do you mean? It's either the holodeck or it's in a star a cargo hold. No, they're, they're, uh, they did a landing party down to the surface of a planet, um, which, of course, was, like, in some sort of nebula, so they couldn't communicate out. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're down in this, like, ancient uh, cavern where they've been kept for all these years. Um, but we'll, I will re, we'll rewatch it. You, you, you guys yeah. need a database for this so yeah. you, can, you can get answer. Mm. <laughs> that should be just oh, a quick oh search. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That, that's a... Mm. That's actually awesome that you mentioned that uh, just for the opportunity for the plug. Mm. Uh, we did actually build a giant database over the course of writing this book because we, we had these moments. Um, and uh, the 37s wasn't actually in that database, which is why Nathan are <laughs> kind of like, wait, what uh. was it? Um, uh, and But that was an internal database, one that I coded up. And oh, my goodness, I'm not a coder. Um, but we're slowly revealing that database online at a website that we've got um, and would love to let your listeners know. It's at uh, scifiinterfaces.com. Um, right. And so far, we've only got... Um, Metropolis and um, Forbidden Planet up, but we have the entire beta database sort of scheduled to come online slowly. Excellent. Nice, yeah. So, and that's really for these exact questions where mm -hmm. other people who are maybe taking up these questions or other different ones can hop into this database or uh, and see what they can see, or even if they just want to say, "Hey, what have dials looked like over the course of science fiction?" Or, "Hey, um, show me what uh, weapons how they have evolved over the course of sci-fi." Yeah, exactly. Like a, almost like a giant yeah. pattern library. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm.
I think so, were you um, sorry, Pat, were you going to ask me? I was going to go into um, one of your, your chapters is about gestures, and I, I'm into this debunking myths because uh, you assert there that Tom Cruise, who probably would never, never admit this, but he gets really tired from moving his arms and holding them above chest level when oh, using bless. this interface. <laughs> and that's that's really interesting because that gesture interface in Minority Report is something that is referenced by and large by every interaction designer around the world. And as some everybody sees it, that's the future. But we're not actually testing it in the way that you described there, that people actually do get tired waving their arms around mm -hmm. like that. And you have lots of yeah. good examples like that in the book, I think, where you actually put things in perspective and look at what would happen if we actually did that. Well, this and this would happen. Mm. And you do that. Yeah. You do that in a great way with lots of examples, actually. Yeah, I actually um, just as a as a side note, I happened to hear John Undercoffler speak um, when I was down at the Create Tech conference about a month ago in Santa Monica, and uh, he actually admits that on stage that um, he himself. Has, uh, oh, and I should say that John Undercoffler is the fellow who created the original tech um, that you see in the film, and actually has a a company called Oblong Industries that is um, commercializing this technology for like boardrooms across the across the world. I mean, he actually acknowledges that um, holding your hands above your heart is pretty exhausting. Mm. Um, but again, that's sort of a narrative trope. It looked better to have his, Tom Cruise's hands up in the air, but you can actually use that, and especially you know, in the uh, over a decade since that film, of course mm -hmm. the technology's gotten better. Mm. Um, and you can actually just lift your hands up to do it uh, and still manipulate the right. interface. Mm. Um, well, so no, it's actually... actually yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say that's an interesting uh, point about this, is that that's not a futuristic interface. It's got a futuristic wrapper around it, but it's actually a working interface from, you know, his work at the MIT Media Lab, and he's right. mm. trying to sell it commercially. It just seems really, really futuristic yeah, in yeah. the same way that we, you know, we all remember the uh, geographic sort of spatial control system from the computers in Jurassic Park, which seemed really futuristic, and yet it was a shipping <laughs> piece of software if you had a Silicon Graphics workstation. Yeah. That's right. You mentioned a couple of these examples in the book, that there are a lot of these films do actually use when, they, when especially when they show command line uh, yeah. interfaces it's a lot of it's taken from real systems mm. right but um, I, I, never, I had a question as well but one thing that must well, I wonder if it was tempting for you was would it be to dive in submerge yourself completely in the design process of a single film or series or, or even interface um, to you know to learn more about the the process um, that the film and TV companies go through um, to come to the interfaces that they are. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of production and, and you know, things to do with how they want it to look, but the, it still must be fascinating to know exactly how much effort and work they put into researching. Well, yeah. I think it depends on the film. I mean, we've done, a, Chris mostly has interviewed a lot of production designers already, and mm. that gives us some insight into the processes. Mm. I would still say that uh, budget is a big constraint, whether it's for the set production costs or just the time to pay people, uh, we've heard that you know in many cases they just don't have the time to delve in as deeply as they would want because they need to hit a production schedule and yeah. so they sort of use their intuition. Mm. Oh, this sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's anywhere project. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we uh, one of our secret weapons in that regard uh, is uh, a good friend of ours named Mark Coloran, who did interfaces um, for uh, the Island and um, the Jason Bourne uh, series, and um, he actually left the sci-fi world to come work on the interfaces in the real world, um, partially because uh, he was frustrated with you know having budgets and unreasonable bosses, uh, and <laughs> and I think he had something of a rude awakening um, when he came to the design world because you know we all deal with uh, insane deadlines and sometimes unreasonable bosses. Um, but but it is very actually true that the um, the constraints of uh, the movie making business are uh, are mighty and really hard to overcome. Um, and it was actually one of the things that I, I kind of have my fingers crossed uh, about the book. Of course, our main audience were interface designers, folks who um, and, sci and science fiction fans, of course, um, who want to use and think about this stuff in their real life. Yeah. Um, but uh, the fact that we took time to really think through, say, communication or really think through the phases of medicine, um, I hope is something that, um, you know, uh, production designers in the business could say, oh, hey, you know, we don't need to think about this. Uh, we've already got some uh, some thought uh, in the book. Yeah. Uh, but I, I haven't heard that back yet because we're not targeting those guys. No, yeah. but I, I definitely noticed that, that there was a, there's a lot of production um, explanations in, in the book. And I can see how definitely it would be useful for yeah um, producers to to kind of short in some way shortcut some of the uh, conversations and meetings and discussions about yeah how do we do that and that's not to say that some directors and producers don't you know uh take this seriously and delve deeply we we know that destination moon which is probably the first and then 2001 and even minority report mm. they they had specific design sessions or at least conceptual brainstorming sessions where they brought in scientists and engineers and and others designers to to imagine a credible future hmm. um and so the in fact some of the sci-fi that sort of holds up the best uh over time even though it was made a long time ago is the sci-fi that has you know bothered to be serious about the project uh, about you know the pro process of creating the future or a vision for the future that goes beyond just sort of window dressing. Yeah. There was a film that was made, Nathan, I'm gonna, here I'm going to uh, use yeah. your memory as well. There was a film that was made right at the same time of Destination Moon. And this is for, if you're, if you're not aware, it's like a 1950s, uh, let's, let's all journey to the moon, you know, through, through rockets, which was unheard of at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but there was another film made at the same time, but with uh, next to zero concern <laughs> about scientific rationality. <laughs> um, and I mean, they end up walking on the surface of the moon without helmets. Um, do you remember the name of that film, Nathan? Uh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it was. No, uh, I'm but, trying to think about that now. I mean, yeah, the but, one thing that comes to mind is uh, this crazy film, um, and it was like nudists on the planet on the moon or something like that. But in mm. uh, <laughs> which they do all that as well. Um, oh, geez, let me see if I can pull this out of my uh, memory and out of my notes. Mm. Yeah, I was going to look for it too. But anyway, but it was a it was a really interesting comparison because they were both made at the same time, so they have some of the same surface, uh, you know, similarities. Mm -hmm. um, many of the interfaces sort of uh, make homage to the same things. But when we look back on them, you know, sixty years on, uh, one of them is like, "Hey, that was actually pretty good," you know, pretty smart. There's like one tension scene in Destination Moon where the 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 core crisis is that the uh, the astronaut is floating away from the spacecraft. 
aircraft and they're like figuring out how to get him back, um, which is, you know, genuine and smart. And uh, the 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 scenes in this other movie are things like green bug eyed, you know, monsters appearing from behind moon rocks. Um, and it's just like it, it's it's was probably maybe more exciting at the time, um, but uh, just fails to hold up in comparison. And right. these sort of the quaintness of uh, uh, the quaintness of these uh, movies and of the interfaces within them um, just doesn't hold up as well if they don't put the thought into it. Hmm. Yeah, Destination Moon was 1950. I'm thinking about a movie called Nude on the Moon from 1960. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> what have you been watching? Don't <laughs> I like it is. That, that, that wasn't part of the te- sex chapter, actually. So, <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> but I don't know which one you're. you're I, I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but it would be around 1950, Chris. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up as we keep talking, and I'll I'll pipe up later with, oh my god, it was this. Yeah, you can send um, but, send it to me, and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. But but how would you expect us as interaction designers, or what type of feedback have you been getting from people reading the book on how they're using the book in their day job? Uh, wow, have you heard any, Nathan? I like it. <laughs> it's so it's so new that yeah. I have not yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's only been out two weeks, so yeah. we have we've heard a lot of excited excitement and mm. you know sort of gratitude that this book is out and etc but i don't think we've heard of anyone uh, yet saying oh i can't you know this is this is how it changed my work mm-hmm. uh now i will say that we've been giving workshops uh around the book for uh, about six months now i'm doing one tomorrow actually here in new york right. where it, it's interesting to see the kinds of um development that people go through with the exercises that we give them, and it does push them into a space they probably never would have gone to before, but then they have to sort of bring that back to the reality of technology mm-hmm. and their bosses or their clients. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how those exercises yeah. have, uh, uh, you know, what they've become. Mm. I actually, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm going I'm to yeah. stick my neck out and say, yeah. I wonder if um, the book in itself is more of a discussion starter and then it's going to be a whole load of things that you can talk about yeah. after reading the book so the book itself might not be a, a tool for for your work but what you talk around it could it's be. like an artifact for starting discussions mm. yeah i actually have an example of, of things that popped into my mind reading it back to minority report there's you have the example of someone walking in uh, and to greet uh, tom cruise uh, in that scene and he, when he stretches out his hand, of course, he moves something on the screen. So the system should recognize intent. And you talk also about there's a child in another movie banging on a phone that, sh- that should actually make the, make the phone, uh, uh, the call end, but it doesn't. So, but you make, make something out of that and it could actually be the intent that it's not supposed to end the, uh, shut down the call. But also what I thought of when I read that was like, I work a lot with web forms and um, a big problem I see with web forms is that the error handling is really bad, as it always is. But an obvious thing is when people actually hit the send button before filling out any field at all. And it's so obviously (laughs) not their intent to send it, but you scream errors in their face for all different form fields that you have on there. But obviously you should just say, sorry, you you forgot. Yeah, you you press enter by accident. Something like that. So, So I'm seeing ways of using these as fun examples for the people when i do talks for example when i'm trying to explain things to clients think about this in the real world and think about how this affects how you, how you how how we design the website today and e- even the scene the thing the scene with the uh, where you have darth vader um talk to the stormtrooper yeah, and the tie fighter yeah exactly 
and, mm. and Darth Vader is really small, <laughs> yeah, and talking up to the stormtrooper. Yeah, I'm thinking, okay, so the tonality of my website is it talking up or down to the user? <laughs> wow, that's cool. That's yeah. a that's an abstraction we didn't even pull out yeah. from it, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we uh, I don't actually think this term ended up in the book, but it's one that um, uh, I, I gave when I spoke in the Netherlands fairly recently. Is that um, sci-fi is this sort of lingua franca of future interactions, um, where we can say, "What's a gestural interface?" Well, you know, it's like the Minority Report interface, yeah. and even though there are like dozens of interfaces in there that's the one that people know that you're talking about um or if i want to talk about sort of a gunner seat interface i can just say you know like uh luke skywalker in the right. in the basement yeah. of the millennium falcon um and it, that is actually something that we have and kind of the the real world can certainly capture current paradigms mm -hmm. but when you want to talk about something new and cool and you want to push the boundaries of your own work the place you can turn to is science fiction mm, yeah. um and if and if we just like use them as they are without sort of taking a critical eye to them um i, I think we're actually going to do ourselves a disservice because they're not perfect they're there for narrative purposes yeah. not for design reasons mm, exactly yeah when you were talking about anthrop <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. Anthropomorphism, well, yeah, yep. the human-like yep. interfaces. Uh, I was uh, I was thinking about um, the old search engine, which you probably remember, Ask Jeeves. Oh yeah. Oh, sure. oh yeah. We asked simple questions, phrasing them as questions, and it returned answers in the way that answers would to. be presented. Mm. And I like that, and it really humanized that the, the search experience, which I haven't seen after that actually either. I don't I don't even know if Ask Jeeves is still online. I believe it is. It well, is. It's, just, it's called ask.com now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. They go, oh, oh, they lost Jeeves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they fired him. They retired him. Yeah, they yeah. fired him. <laughs> well, him and Dewey, right? They're probably off in search engine, you know, warehouse mm. somewhere. <laughs> Actually, we ought to write a piece of sci-fi about what Jeeves and Mrs. Dewey are doing. Like, <laughs> 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 Maybe they hooked up. In version two, in um, revision two of the book, you can add that to chapter thirteen about sex. Mm. Right, well, you know oh, what? Nice. I think what actually happens is they they create Bob and Clippy, who then go back in oh. time and create them. Mm. <laughs> oh, see, no, no, I'm still on the chapter yeah. thirteen thing again, so you can't mention Clippy when, I'm, when I've got kind of you know, sex bots in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> You, you don't want to find out about the reality that that you know sex bots are actually going to be more like Clippy than like you know <laughs> Buffy Bot. Oh, because they'll be running some version of like Windows 13. God, yeah. Or sex bots. <laughs> one one thing I also wanted to ask you about is that uh, I do a lot of talks around quantified self today, and I actually haven't seen any quantified reference. Quantified self. Quantified self. Okay. Well, I mean, I have this Fitbit tracker. I have my uh, WeThink scale that can mm -hmm. actually, well, it registers everything, but it can also tweet my weight, but it doesn't currently. No, I've never <laughs> seen that. <laughs> uh, but all this data that we're collecting about ourselves, I, I haven't actually seen reference to that in any sci-fi movies, or I didn't think about it reading the book either. Ooh. But all this data you're collecting that... I mean, it seems like a strange behavior. Human being. Oh, James is waving his hand. I, I'm, I'm, apparently, I'm, has a reference. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> no, I was just going to prove that I've read yeah. a bit more of the book than you. Because <laughs> ah, okay. I was there, yeah. is, there is a mention, and you guys can help me out here because you wrote it <laughs> when you're talking talking about using data to extrapolate intent or more, you know, to, to predict things more using the data you've mm. got. And you, you do hint at that at one point, I think, mm. in the book. 
Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we found out uh, that we find or, or didn't find in science fiction that strike us as uh, great opportunities for science fiction to expound on. And one of those things are, you know, personal scale sensor networks. They don't really show up except for a scene in the original Star Trek where uh, uh, a character, an ambassador, comes on board and she's got this sort of beautiful dress that turns out to be a sensor network that allows her to see. Mm-hmm. Since she's blind, they don't find that out until you know near the end of the, the the episode, and that's really one of the only instances that we see of this kind of personal sensor network. Even though it's right. in a very different genre and for use than what we see as you know Fitbit and Quantified Self, at the same time we see very little use of networks um, and the kind of uh, oh, yeah. uh, network a- 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 uh, applications and mm. uses that we use today. So there are big blind spots in mm. sci-fi for sure. Yeah, and in, in fact, we see sort of tropes all the time that shut down communication for narrative purposes. Um, like the Battlestar Galactica, you know, they had a, actually a really good diegetic reason as to why they shouldn't be using networked communications, but uh, it's partially a constraint of what stories we can tell when everyone knows everything. Um, mm. We're just not good at those stories yet. Um, and I think as time goes on and, you know, a, a younger generation sort of grows up expecting to know everything that the stories that they begin to tell will be a little bit different um, but I did think of actually another another giant thing that never appears in sci-fi that we uh, noticed is volume control yeah Ooh. volume oh. is always perfect in movies and television there's only yeah I know there's only one example that I can think of and, and of course I haven't seen all of sci-fi but it's only in contact um, uh, when she's actually turning that mechanical dial in order to listen closer to the sounds of space. Um, oh, but it, yeah. ju- it just goes to show, sort of like the quantified self um, uh, and the network example, that um, sci-fi as a, as a narrative genre has certain things that it affords, to, to use an interaction design term, mm-hmm. um, and that, that doesn't cover all of our work. Um, it is incomplete as a textbook. It's a very big textbook, uh, but ultimately we, we do have to add to it with our, with our own uh, knowledge and domain mm. expertise. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think we have to start thinking about wrapping think up or taking is. a lot of t- your time here. Yeah. Well, actually, well, one thing we mentioned before we, um, when we were getting the kit um, set up here uh, was um, me and Pat realized that we could probably talk about this for days. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. We, we, actually, we actually joked that if we couldn't get hold of you on Skype, then we could do the interview anyway because yeah. we, were, we were babbling so much about scenes from various films and you know, things from the book and so on. That mm. No problem at all to fill the time. Chris. <laughs> no, actually... Oh, I, I remember uh, very uh, uh, vividly when we first gave this talk at, at South by Southwest about three or four years ago now, um, as the talk had ended and the lights were coming up and people were getting out of their chairs, Chris turned to me and said, you know what I just realized? Like, this can't really go wrong. <laughs> if all that, yeah. you know, the, they do is, is sit in the dark and watch clips from their favorite sci-fi films, they're going to be happy. And it's <laughs> kind of true. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a gimme thing. So. Yeah, no, but but actually, one of the things that was great about that very talk is that um, uh, Annalee Newitz, who's the editor of the fantastic uh, sci-fi blog IO9, happened to be in the audience, uh, actually, oh, wow. along with Bruce Sterling, who ended up writing our, our uh, foreword. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Annalee got up um, to the microphone, and she said, um, I wanted to let you guys know that I fully expected you to fail. And, of course, this being <laughs> our, our first presentation, my heart completely sank. I was like, what's going on? Uh, um, and she said, oh, 
No, because that. Oh, maybe you're right. Because that was but, the yeah. time we went to go talk about sex. The sex one. We had to <laughs> the next year. Yeah, you yeah. have a sex only technology. talk. It doesn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. And ahead. and charmingly, that was the year that my dad came to South by Southwest. Oh, well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was he was in the audience for that one. Um, but she said, "I fully expected you to fail," and of course, my heart sank. And um, then she followed it up by, "It would have been very easy to simply get up and show us moments from science fiction." And she said that would not have added anything. We've seen those films, uh, but what she complimented on is particularly uh, on the sex chapter. But uh, I'm going to extrapolate to the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. She said that we've added a layer of analysis and, of course, the lessons that do make it use, that we have added something to this material mm-hmm. um, and moved it forward as a conversation and not just simply been fanboys. Uh, and that, right. to me, was sort of the, the, the biggest stamp of approval that, uh, yes, we have added something and that we're m- not just watching sci-fi, but using it too. Yeah, you've joined some dots that have not been joined before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Great. So do we have any final questions for you? Uh, well, you're looking at me now. I think I'm done. Yeah, I, I, I have one obvious one. <laughs> Go on then. So, what's the best sci-fi movie? Ooh. Uh, oh, no, Ooh. Actually, I remember one more question. Right. Ooh. Well, there's no such thing, right? I mean, there's, ah. there are a lot of fantastic movies that you watch for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like. Yeah, there, there's so like there's so many ways to cut that question. Mm-hmm. Like, do you mean which one can we return to repeatedly, or which yeah. one has sort of the 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 best interface on the surface, or the best interfaces after sort of analysis? Um, yeah, that's a real tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, it, actually, there's a T-shirt I saw at Burning Man this year that probably applies here, and the shirt basically said, "Next year's burn was better." Uh, <laughs> And so I think like the best sci-fi film is, the, oh, is wow. probably yet to come, right? Like yeah. we have all these hopes for the second installment of the Star Trek reboot, and you know, cl- uh, what is it, Cloud Heaven, or what's the new one by the Wachowskis? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I, I thought earlier. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of mm-hmm. great sci-fi still still to come, and I think yeah. that um, they have the opportunity to to best in some ways everything that's come before. Yeah. I like that. That's a positive yeah, that's a um, great note to finish yeah. on. So yeah, yeah. Finally, awesome. where do we get the book? I saw on Twitter that you were sold out out on Amazon. So I guess we just go to rosenfullmedia.com. Yeah, Rosenfull yeah, Media, and actually, it's probably a better place because you can get the uh, electronic files along with it, uh, the uh, EPUB, the Mobi, and the PDF. Yeah. Um, you can get. I mean, you get whether you buy just the digital or the physical book uh, as well. You get all formats. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah. all the images from the book are on the Flickr. I love that about Rosenfeld Media. It's always you can find them there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Cloud Atlas. That's the film coming out in uh, twenty in fifteen days in the U.S. Oh, Cloud, okay. Cloud Atlas was that? Ah, nice. <laughs> Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, and the Wachowski are are behind it. Okay. Wow. Cool. I've not even heard of that, but I'll be in the cinema. All right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for doing this, guys. It's been loads of fun. Thanks to you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks. Thank excellent. You for feeding our obsession. Yeah. <laughs> our thanks pl- for letting our us. Pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All okay. right. See you later. Take care. Yeah. Enjoy nice that. talking to you. Yeah. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fun. Yeah, it was, actually. We could have talked for days, well, <laughs> yeah. like I said. No problem at we'll all. Keep, we'll keep talking. Uh, we, we do usually. Yeah. So. <laughs> so apologize if this was really, really long. It was probably one of our longer podcasts, but we had. Yeah. I think I hope you had good fun listening to um, Nathan and Chris. 
and I was talking. And we didn't get to speak a whole lot about the sex chapter, which no, we thought we I, would. <laughs> I actually, I was going to ask about male sex bots, but ah, that was going to be your, you, you were waving at me. You had a final question. I know but. I did, but it was it was a real nice ending with a with a kind yeah, of sweet, yeah. um, you know, positive thing about the future that yeah. Um, yeah, Nathan said. But I think I actually will be looking at sci-fi movies very differently from now on. I, I will be thinking more mm. and more about the interfaces because. I'm not usually that bothered when I when I see them do it wrong, but now I'll be more looking at how they actually do it and why they might have done it like that. Exactly. I'm, I, I know from seeing, as I said about um, Prometheus last week, that yeah. I'm already being a little bit mm. critical. Oh, I've got a critical eye now on mm. interfaces that I didn't have mm. before I read the book. Mm. And, and it's just fun introducing a new perspective. I mean, looking at interaction design from a whole different uh, side of things. I mean, I've never looked at it this way before and, and just doing that makes you think in, in different ways and that's one of the fun things about mm. working in this area is that there are no right answers to it. It's all about believability I guess. That's a very good way of putting it actually. Mm. Yeah, nice. So, uh, is it next week we're at Conversion Jam? Wow, time is moving um, fast. You know, I can't But our next remember. episode <laughs> at least will be at Conversion Jam. Uh, no, it's not. It's in two weeks. It's in two weeks. Exactly. Two weeks. We've got yeah. two weeks. So yeah. this will come out probably um, on Monday or on something. Monday, and then we'll have a week till we do. Yeah, and we'll be putting that. We're hoping to post those quite fast after we record them. Oh, that'll be fun. We're hoping to do it from the event. Yeah, from the event. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whew. You're going to be sick no. to the death of your ex-podcast oh, by the end of October. It's, uh, <laughs> it's so much fun, though. Mm. Okay. So um, I'm preparing to take my ride over to... SAB Innovation Awards and see how that what happens over there. I'm nominated. I'm just gonna have my dinner. <laughs> Come hungry. Okay, people, remember to keep moving. And see you on the other side. You've been listening to UX Podcasts with James Royal Lawson and Pear Axeboom. Visit uxpodcast.com for more episodes and to subscribe to the show. UX Podcast, moving the conversation beyond UX.